Yo-ho, from Semi-Pro Cycling, this is Ride Better Faster, the show about cycling training and racing. I'm Damien Roos. On this show, a quick and dirty listicle with seven common mistakes the cyclists make and how to fix them. Plus, in the Science of Fast segment, two studies that look into how to maintain performance in a transition period so you come back stronger than ever before. Seven is actually a pretty short list of mistakes we can make, but I've tried to narrow it down even though some of these may seem trivial and obvious. If you're a new cyclist, you may learn something. If you're an experienced rider, it's a reminder to visit the basics again. Also, I've got to put it out there, there is nothing wrong with making mistakes. And as Charlie tells Maverick, To be the best of the best means you make mistakes. And then you go on, it's just like the rest of us. And with that, let's get to number one. The first mistake that people make, not patient enough. The first mistake that I see cyclists make is they don't acknowledge that the process of getting fitter and stronger will be long and hard. If you just want to tick off a bucket list ride and get the whole training thing over quickly and without pain, you're definitely setting yourself up for unnecessary frustration. This holds true off the bike too. In my current home of Denmark, epidemiologists from the University of Southern Denmark set out to explore why Danes consistently score higher than people in other Western countries on measures of life satisfaction. Their findings uncovered the importance of expectations. If expectations are unrealistically high, they could be the basis of disappointment and low satisfaction, wrote the authors. While the Danes are very satisfied, their expectations are rather low. If you go into this process expecting it to be difficult, you can always be pleasantly surprised, which helps performance. But when you do go into training expecting it to be easier than it will be, the moment it gets hard, you quickly spiral into panic, losing your ability to bounce back and maintain momentum. And the point is this. If you know your training is going to be a protracted grind and you go into it with that expectation, odds are that you'll feel a lot better throughout the entire ordeal. Also understand that there will be highs and lows. Your job is to stay present throughout them so you can respond. When the highs occur, tell yourself, this is what's happening right now. And when the lows occur, say the same thing. This is what's happening right now. When the best cyclists and coaches hit low points, they take productive action and adjust their plan as needed. And then they keep going. They also replace negative self-talk with kindness. As the queen of pain, Rebecca Roosh says, if you are kind to yourself, most of the time you'll get through the dark spot in a better mood and without wasting precious energy ruminating. Number two, your food intake on the bike is inadequate. If you wait for a drop in intensity or even wait until you feel hungry, it's already too late to avoid compromising or have compromised the muscle and liver glycogen stores. Bonking is not a nice experience and it affects not only the training session or the race, but it impairs performance and recovery in the days to follow. I hate to say it like this, but on the bike, it's kind of like eating until you're sick. In the way that you need to train your stomach to handle anywhere from 60 to 90 grams of carbs per hour, it's important to find your limit by pushing to maximize your carb intake. Sometimes you take that over the edge and you may be sick. I really have to admit that I make this mistake more often than I want to say. It's definitely because sometimes I'm limited in what I have in my cupboard. 
Any sports food, in air quotes, is simply paying for convenience and probably packaging. And sometimes I'm being tight by not buying these or I've just run out. And this is when I normally kid myself and say that I'll be okay on the ride, but always end up stuffing myself at a local bakery or a service station after I've gone down the road of not fueling myself a little too far. So the lesson here, other than finding your limit and consuming a lot, is to plan and buy often, even if this is for homemade drink mix or some whole foods. Number three, cutting and pasting training sessions. Losing some training days will always happen. Injury, illness, daily commitments, the unexpected, the dog sick. How you react to this will change the experience. And at the beginning of your cycling career, you may be anxious about losing the session, which means that you've tried to double up when you're back. So you move sessions down the calendar onto the next day that you're training. And honestly, this does more harm than good and has a negative influence on your training. The best advice I can give you here, if you just miss a day or two, you shouldn't have to worry about adjusting your training plan. Just carry on with your plan as prescribed. If you miss a week of training, it can have potentially damaging effects on your progression. If a rest week happens to coincide with the missed week, then it's not so bad. But if it's a hard or a specific week in your training plan, then it's a good idea to pick up where you left off. This also goes for if you get back to it, and the work feels more difficult than it should be, or it did before you stopped. Also, if you've missed more than a week. If this is a key step in your progression of your training, then you need to go back and do the days that you've missed. So counting the days you've missed and just going back and starting at that point again. This isn't always possible, either because of time constraints before an event, or you simply mentally can't handle that intensity at that time. My recommendation here is you have to make a decision here because something will have to be compromised, whether that is the specific build for the event or you just have to face the fact that you missed a week or more and you won't be in as good a shape as you could have been. Number four is giving in to negative thoughts. Even the most positive people and great champions have negative thoughts. What matters is how you respond to them. Ideally, you redirect negative thoughts into positives, turning a, I can't do this, into a, I've done this before, I can do it now. When you're tired, negative thoughts often carry more weight, or put another way, we're less likely to redirect them to positives. The dangerous thing about negative thoughts is how quickly they feed off each other, multiply, and drag you down. Knowing that it's natural to have these thoughts and being kind to yourself is the best place to start. Part of the solution might be devoting time to mental skills training. You can train your brain to recognize and respond to negative thoughts, not just generally, but also in specific situations. The mental strategy you use to dispel self-doubt and elevate confidence before a challenge is different from the mental strategy you employ when you're exhausted or trying to fight off the urge to quit. A lot of these negative thoughts come from when you're tired from training, and there's nothing wrong with being tired. It's kind of the whole point of endurance training, and sometimes you do train to exhaustion and you love that feeling. But as you begin to get tired, the decisions you make determine how much longer you'll be able to keep going. So as long as you can identify any negative thought patterns, you can change the outcome of those thoughts. Number five, focusing on outcome over process. A goal of finishing a stage race is thrilling and energizing until you realize how hard it is to actually complete one. Focusing too heavy on the end game can demoralize and demotivate you from the steps you need to take today to accomplish it. Focusing on the process means breaking a goal down into its component parts and then concentrating on tackling those parts. 
in a mechanism that keeps you in the here and now, even during the pursuit of distant goals. Studies show that a process mindset creates regular opportunities for little victories, which can help sustain the motivation required to accomplish long-term goals. There is so much outside of your control in training and racing, how the competition does, the weather, and to an extent, how your body feels. And that's why it's so important to stay focused on what you can control in training. Things like your most important training days, outlook, and response to external problems. It's okay to keep the end goal in mind, but you've got to train day to day. Number six, unnecessary comparisons with others. One question that I deal with as a coach is, why aren't I doing this at this time of year? Or, I feel like I need this, shouldn't I be training like this? It is understandable that in any competitive endeavor, we are competing with others, duh. And it's natural to look around and compare ourselves to others and see what they're doing in training and asking why am I not doing the same? A bit of Strava stalking here and there, a race result hunting of the girl you beat last week, But it's a good reminder that every athlete has their own plan, their own goals, as well as their own strengths and weaknesses. Even two people with the same goal will probably need to work out differently because of their subjective physiological profile and requirements. It also goes for two athletes with identical training opportunities. They'll have a different route depending on, for example, not only their goals, but their sporting history. If you find that you're comparing yourself to others, here's a gentle reminder to meet yourself where you are and get a little better each day. Know that if you're new to the sport, you're doing a great job by challenging yourself to try something new. If you're an old hand and not happy with how you're going, make some changes. We all get caught up in other people's progress from time to time. Just take a step back and look how far you've come and then get back to work. Number seven, assuming you don't need to pay attention to your form. We all know how to ride, right? We've been doing it since we were little kids, chasing after the ice cream truck. Who needs instructions on how to push a pedal down? Well, it's not quite that simple. Most of us sit at desks all day, and when it comes time to ride, it's not uncommon to have developed some issues because of this. These can slow us down or even lead to injury, and riding mindlessly can only drive these bad habits deeper. Pedaling technique gets neglected because there are so many other shining objects out there. If there's a problem, it's your bike fit or your shoes, you aren't stretching enough, etc, etc, etc. But it's all about nailing the basics over and over and over again. Reminding yourself mid-ride, taking mental checklists and correcting yourself under different intensities. It's about deliberate practice of good technique. And I got a bonus here. Only do shit if you can get away with it. Skin suit in a road race. Only if you have a chance of winning or you're getting paid to ride. Aero helmet in a local crit, only if you can sprint for the win. Dura ace, only if someone gives it to you. Cycling is a sport where everything is earned, where everyone at each level knows what it takes to earn those things, and jumping the queue is not going to earn you respect in your local bunch. And boom, 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 there we have it. Again, I encourage you to make these mistakes and see what happens, because... All we can do is make peace with the past and try to learn from it. Okay, it's time for... The Science of Fast. The Science of Fast. The segment of the show where it's 100% science, 100% whatever. This time, two approaches to maintaining performance in the off-season. Now, I get that it might be a bit of a stretch 
to call it an off-season this year. But definitely there's going to be some downtime. And it's important for a lot of riders, basically everyone that isn't a professional, to maintain some type of aerobic fitness, but also get the mental break needed so they can hit training for the next season, the next year, hard and fast, and they are ready to go. So what if I presented two different ways where you do a little bit of cycling in that break, let's call it the transition period, and it sets you up for the next year and you don't have to lose a lot of fitness in that gap. Because a big part of this is, and we talked about this recently, consistency and how detraining impacts your performance. So I thought it would be interesting to have a couple of strategies in the toolbox to maintain aerobic fitness in transition periods. The thing here is that both of these studies use high intensity training to maintain aerobic performance. And this might actually be the best use case for high intensity training, but the big concern here is burnout. And that's the first thing I thought about when I came across the first study. I went straight to the high intensity training durations and thought that's a tough sell to even the most committed athletes. The study by Benter and the Star et al. 2014 called HIT maintains performance during transition period and improves next season performance in well-trained cyclists. They used two groups of well-trained cyclists. The VO2 max for the first group was 69 plus or minus 6. The second group, VO2 max of 68 plus or minus 5. They applied two different postseason training strategies over the course of eight weeks of a postseason break. One group did low intensity training only, and the other group did one weekly session of high intensity intervals in addition to the low intensity training. Both groups did an equal amount of weekly training hours. So the low and hit group did a hit session every seven to 10 days during this eight week period. Now here's the session. It was either five times six minutes or six by five minutes at 105 to 120% of FTP with a work to recovery ratio of two to one. So a six minute interval, three minute recovery. And I don't know about you, but that sounds like... It's a guaranteed burnout project. Even though the results were promising. And interestingly, the low group lost so much ground during the initial eight weeks that they were unable to make up for it the following preseason. Come spring, the low plus high intensity group displayed 12.1% better threshold power and they increased their VO2 max and their 40-minute all-out performance compared to the low training only group. So it is a good result, but can you imagine sitting through five by six minutes at 105 to 120% of FTP, basically right after you've just finished a really long season? Base training, in its essence, without too much high-intensity stuff, gives you a mental and physical break. And the second study recognized this and the potential for burnout when doing crazy amounts of high intensity like that. So it decided to take sprint training as a way to have a low load alternative for elite cyclists. And this study called Effects of Including Sprints in One Weekly Low Intensity Training Session During the Transition Period of elite cyclists, took 16 male cyclists that were just as elite at the first study. Their VO2 max was 72, plus or minus 5. This was a shorter intervention of 21 days that started three to five days after each cyclist's last competition of the season. 
The cyclists were split into two groups, again with one group doing only low-intensity training, and their low-intensity training is defined at around 60% of VO2 max. On Coggins' levels, this is high endurance zone to low tempo, and the other group doing low-intensity training, and once a week, a supervised 90-minute low-intensity training session with some sprints thrown in. Now, I'll get to the exact session in a moment, but overall, both groups did approximately 13 sessions, plus or minus three, over the three weeks. So that's four or five sessions a week in their transition or break period, and the overall training was reduced by approximately 60%. Now, the session that they completed three times in three weeks when they wanted to be on a beach somewhere else instead, I'm making that bit up, but... What do you like to do at the end of a long season? A beach sounds pretty good after you've slogged away for the last 10 months or so. Anyway, the session included riding in high endurance, low tempo zone, and included three sets of three times 30 seconds max sprints interspersed by four minutes of active recovery at 100 watts and 15 minutes between sets. Now, before we get to the impact of this session on maintaining performance, we talked before about burnout, because really, who wants to do more high-intensity work after coming off a build and perform period? So to address this, or to measure the impact of this type of work, mental recovery was evaluated using the Athlete Burnout Questionnaire. And this is a 15-item sports-specific athlete burnout questionnaire, where athletes were asked to rate how often do they feel this way. There were 15 different statements to evaluate their participation motives in the sport on a five-point Likert scale from one, almost never, to five, almost always. I won't go into the 15 different statements, but basically this questionnaire has three five-item subscales assessing three key dimensions of burnout. They were reduced sense of accomplishment, emotional and physical exhaustion, and devaluation of sport participation. A total summarized score from, from this questionnaire is achieved by averaging all three subscale scores, and the questionnaire was completed pre and post intervention. All righties then. The results. The only significant between group change during the transition period was a 8 plus or minus 11% larger improvement in 30 second sprint performance in the sprint group compared to the control group, which just did the low intensity training. Sprint group saw a 4% plus or minus 5% increase, and the control groups are a minus 4, plus or minus 5% decrease. And although not different from the control group, the sprint group maintained their 20-minute all-out performance, minus 1, plus or minus 5%, and fractional utilization of VO2 max, 1.9, plus or minus 6.1%, during the 20-minute all-out test whereas corresponding declines were observed in the control group. There was a minus 3 plus or minus 5% and a minus 2.5 plus or minus 2.9% in the points of their fractional utilization of VO2 max. Interestingly for us, power output at 4 millimoles uh, a litre, blood lactate concentration decreased both in the sprint group, minus 4 plus or minus 4%, and in the control group, minus 5 plus or minus 5%, while VO2 max, maximal aerobic power, and total burnout score were unaffected in both groups. Okay then, so what are the key takeaways? Including a series of 30-second sprints in a low-intensity training session once a week during a three-week transition period improves sprint performance compared to low-intensity training only. Makes sense, okay, got it. Yeah, really, but so what? You don't need a 30-second sprint 
in your transition period. Also, adding sprints did not affect the power output at four millimoles per litre, which is equally reduced in both groups. If you're judging the intervention on performance, then the results of the 20-minute all-out performance and the fractional utilization of VO2max are definitely of interest here, as the sprint group maintained both of these while the low-intensity-only group reduced these variables. And considering it was only a three-week intervention with three sessions, a longer intervention may also be interesting here, especially considering neither the VO2max, max power, or total burnout seemed affected by the three-week transition period, which is encouraging. Of note is that further testing is missing in this second study. And this is really all about maintaining aerobic performance into the next phase. Testing just before the PERFORM phase would be interesting. The authors recognized this, and this is something that the first study did well, testing after the eight-week transition period and again after a 16-week prep period. Basically, though, even though the underlying adaptions are not clear, the optimal intervention seems to sit somewhere between eight sessions of five to six minutes or six to five minutes at 105 to 120% of FTP and three sessions of three sets of three times 30 seconds max sprints. One where it probably is an increase in the sprints to try and get to a point where you are maintaining threshold power and all out performance at either 20 or 40 minutes or whatever you want to test without dreading the session or burning out. So really, for me, a mix of both of these interventions could work depending on your mental state at the end of a season. And so something like this is a valid N equals one test I can get behind and might even add it to my old man stay fit training toolbox and also roll it out in consultation with a few elites as well. Ride Better, Faster is written, hosted, and scored by me, Damien Roos. You can check out more episodes at semiprocycling.com. Until next time, ride well.